Well, Rebecca's going to come right now, and I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, and verses 42 through 47. Rebecca's going to come, and she's going to read this passage for us. Let's stand together as we read God's Word, and then uh, we're going to see what the Lord has for us today. Rebecca. Reading. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Lord, we thank you for your word. We are continually in awe that you would even choose to reveal your heart and Lord, even these, the way you've worked in history for us in this way, so that we could see, Lord, um, the, the birth of your church and the, the key elements, Lord, of your church. And we could see our own, our own need for a Savior and our own uh, sinfulness and the ways, Lord, that we need to grow and change. Lord, you have blessed us so much by giving us your word. Now, as a result of that, Lord, may we come humbly and thankfully and with eagerness to glean, Lord, from your truth. And Lord, I ask that you would allow me as your messenger, Lord, to simply proclaim your truth as you want it to be proclaimed for your people, as well as, Lord, for those who may be here who do not know you. Lord, what we are not, would you make us? What we have not, would you give us? And Lord, what we know not, Lord, would you teach us? We ask in your precious name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, we all know that the Holy Spirit was poured out on Pentecost. First, through the 120 who had gathered together, and and as the Holy Spirit came on them and filled them, they began to speak in foreign known languages, and the Jews that were in Jerusalem heard that, and they came and they listened to them proclaim the mighty works of God. And then Peter stands up and he gives a sermon based on a question And he he talks further about the realities of Christ, that this Jesus of Nazareth is the one who was incarnated, who was crucified, who was resurrected, who was glorified. He's the one from heaven who was the author of all that was happening on earth by means of the Holy Spirit. And he is the one that God has determined would be both Lord and Christ, the one that these Jews had crucified. And then Peter again gets up. And we saw this last week when the people asked the question, well, what shall we do? He urges them to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then we're told 3,000 souls were added to that 120 initial group of people. So now we have this new group of people. I don't know about you, 3,000 people is a lot of people to manage. I mean, we have difficulty managing our small group, but 3,000 
in one day, what are we going to do? What's the next step? And as we come to our text today, we're going to find out there are next steps. And these next steps include this, the continual devotion to one another. They are a church that is spirit-filled. And now we're going to find out what that looks like. And so the proposition this morning is this, the continual devotion of a spirit-filled church. And I'll just qualify, by spirit-filled, remember, we're talking here not about some charismatic Pentecostal thing. We're talking uh, clearly about the fact that the Holy Spirit now indwells them and is seeking now to work through them. He's empowering them for ministry. What does it look like for this new community? where we're told they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. You just think about this word devoted. If if some of you have the the New American Standard, you'll see that it's translated a little differently because what we don't get in our English translation, at least in the ESV, is that this is continual action. It's saying they continually devoted themselves to these things. So in other words, it has the idea of a devotion that speaks of a steadfast and single-minded devotion to a certain course of action, a course of action given by the Holy Spirit that was foundational for their continued growth and influence in the world. And we might say, well, I'm devoted to my children. And what that means then is that you are steadfast and single-minded in your pursuit of bringing uh, bringing out the best in them wherever they may be and whatever they're doing. You might be saying, I'm devoted to my education. I know when I was working on my PhD, it took me a long time, and it kind of bubbled in the background, but I was devoted to it. I was going to continue to give my direction to it. Some of you are devoted to your careers. We are devoted to a lot of different things, our jobs, our families, our hobbies, our homes, our sports teams, our relationships, our comforts, our pleasures, our food. But what we're given in this text is a picture of what this newly formed community of Christ, the church, was devoted to. So this newly formed group of believers are guided by the Spirit of God and clearly under the leadership of the apostles to a steadfast, single-minded devotion. And it's a picture of what any truly Spirit-filled church should look like as it seeks to be devoted to Christ. Now, Luke is not trying to sanitize the church. This isn't kind of like approaching, you know, Proverbs 31. What does it mean to be, you know, a godly woman? And as you know, if you're a woman and you read that, you're like, oh man, I always fall short. Well, you do. And there's a reason. We go to other passages in Scripture and we just fall short. Here we have a picture of the church that that looks good, all right? But we know in the rest of the, of, of the book of Acts, we find out what the church is actually like. Uh, it's kind of like, like if you come to my home, if you've been in my home, you walk in the door, and we have some stairs to the right. All along the right-hand side, we have these pictures. Some of them are, uh, are pictures of our children. Some of them are family pictures. And we've taken family pictures throughout the years. It's kind of funny to look to see what I looked like years ago. I think it's true of all of us when we look. Some of us have more hair than... We have now and things like that, right? But the thing is, these are family pictures, and they're there. And, and, and oftentimes, those family pictures, everyone's happy, everyone's joyful, and we know that pretty much everything on that wall is a complete and total lie. 
Because you have gone to have your family pictures taken, haven't you? And you know what it's like. You know, you are fighting and wrestling with the kids to make sure everything is is where it needs to be and to get there on time because the person's there, they're ready to take your picture. And then one child is crying because they don't want to be there. Uh, No one's complaining because they don't like their outfit. The teenager in the group is like, I just want to get this thing done, right? I mean, another person is is complaining because their hair isn't, isn't working out well. The baby's just had a blowout and needs to be changed. And mom has laid down the law that if you don't behave, you're losing screens for the next month. And of course, after much frustration, waiting, harsh words, and a patient photographer, a single point in time is captured and is etched into your family history to let the whole world know that you're actually a very happy and composed family. Mostly, Sometimes, for a few seconds at least. And I think there's a sense in which that's what we have here. It's not that the church was perfect, but we have a picture here of of what a church should be like, what a spirit-filled church uh, should should have as, as part of its foundational ingredients. And so this passage falls neatly into three sections. The discipline of devotion, the effect of devotion, and then the fruit of devotion. Let's jump in now to the discipline of devotion. And we're actually going to spend the lion's share of our time in this section. Because I think everything in this passage flows out of this one verse, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. So Peter here identifies four spirit-filled habits or disciplines of devotion that were foundational to this new community. But they're not just foundational for the early church. They're foundational for the ongoing church through the years. And they are essential and foundational for us. Teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. Let's take each one as they come. First of all, devoted to the apostles' teaching. Now, you've got to step back and you've got to ask yourself some questions. How did all this play out? You have 12 apostles and you have 3,000 people. I did the math. That's 250 per apostle. That's still a lot of people to manage. That's still a lot of people to teach. Now, we're not exactly sure specifically how it happened. We know we're told they go into the temple and there's There's teaching going on there. They're going into homes. There's teaching going on there too. Now the question is, what were they teaching? Well, they weren't teaching the epistles because they haven't been written yet. They weren't teaching from the record of the gospels because they haven't even been thought of yet. So what are they teaching? Well, what we can see as we journey through Acts is that the apostles preached Christ from the Old Testament. In fact, when the apostles go into different places, in particular, they go into synagogues, what do they do? They pick up the scriptures, which was the Old Testament, and they show Christ. And we found that in Luke 24, didn't we? Where Jesus walks them through that. But you wonder, you have to wonder whether or not what they also did is these apostles, as they had been sitting down with Jesus during his earthly ministry, listening to him teach, probably included some of those things, a sermon on the mount and so on and so forth, maybe a parable that he taught. And then, of course, 
as we found at the beginning of Acts, Jesus, during those 40 days, taught them about the kingdom. So again, here we have all this all this information, all these things that Christ was teaching them that now are the basis for the apostles teaching their witness. The point here is that these new believers were hungry to learn, hungry to grow in their new walk with Christ. They were eager to continue to be filled with the Spirit. Now hear this, friends. When the Spirit of God reigns among the people of God, you will always find a love and a hunger for God's Word. That's what the Spirit does. He points to Christ, but he gives you a hunger and a desire for the word, more and more word. That's why Colossians 3, 16 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Not just dwell in you, not just memorize it, dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart. All those things flowing out of the word of God dwelling in you. Unfortunately, much of the contemporary church in our day is satisfied with not digging too deep into God's word. They don't want to be controversial. They don't want to stir anything up. They want to be loved. They want to be liked. And instead, what happens is they settle for an emotionally driven experience. But we will let the pastors and the church leadership figure out their theology and study God's word. We just want to enjoy Jesus. Let's just enjoy Jesus together. Well, you have to have parameters. You have to have understanding of who Jesus is and what he's like and what he accepts and what he doesn't in order to enjoy him rightly. You see, we want a church to be an experience, a musical experience, a mystical experience, a powerful experience. And pastor, you'll have to inspire us for 20 minutes, okay? Now, you know me. Those of you who have been part of our church. By 20 minutes is just almost long enough for an introduction. It's, it's maybe long enough for some kind of an inspiration from the Word of God, which really isn't from the Word of God. It's from the person who's trying to, trying to inspire people. What happens here, friends, is this. In their attempt to experience God, they relegate the means of that experience. And that is the unfolded, proclaimed Word of God. That's what we need. This is the priority. This is what this early church was hungering for. Is that what you hunger for? I mean, do you you bring your Bible to church? Do you read your Bible? Do you mark up your Bible? Are you learning? Now, get this. Not because you want to have a fat theological head, but because you know that life comes through the ministry of the Holy Spirit who is revealing God's heart through his word. Friends, we we need this. This is a priority for that early church, and it should be a priority for us. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Secondly, they were devoted to the fellowship. This word fellowship is the Greek word koinonia. You've probably heard that before. Um, There's some camps that are named after that, and it's a word that literally means to to, to be common. In fact, the, the Greek language called Koine Greek, which the New Testament is, is based on, was the common language of the day. It would be kind of like English around the world today. It used to be in that region Koine Greek. Why? It was the common language of that day. That's the idea of the word. And so the idea here of fellowship 
It has the idea of sharing, to have things in common. We read that in verse 44. It's the habit and practice of helping and contributing and giving, not just physical things, but even of yourself. So, so fellowship isn't about donuts and coffee, although you might say, well, we're sharing donuts and coffee. I don't quite think that's the point, right? It's not about donuts and coffee. It's not about potluck meals, although those are wonderful times with the body of Christ. It isn't even about feelings of connectivity. But fellowship is a spirit-filled generosity that is eager to help support and share the burdens of the body of Christ. Here's what we read in 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 14. The Apostle Paul says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. It's not that the Holy Spirit is saying, here, have a bagel. No, he's sharing with you. That's the idea of fellowship. Sometimes when we, we, we go looking for fellowship in a church, what we really need to do is to become fellowship. We need to be the ones that are saying, I want to share my life with you. I'm willing to give of myself for you. And the problem is, that we are so consumed today with the American consumer mentality, aren't we? We go into a church and say, well, does this church have all the things that are going to benefit me? Well, if it has faithful preaching, if it has a, a, a gospel-centered, I mean, a truly Christ-centered gospel, there's some basic elements. That that's all you need, really, to have a healthy church. But so often we have all these other criterias that are a priority to those things, and they don't need to be. Fellowship here, though, is important. Is this church a church where people share? So how does fellowship take place in the context of our church? What does it look like here at Gateway? And I just sat back and I wrote some things down based on things I know have happened in the past. Someone needs a ride to church or to some kind of a church function. That's fellowship. When someone's car breaks down and they get a flat tire and you know that you can help, so you give up your time and you fix the car. That's fellowship. Oh, and refusing to take any money for it. When someone goes into the hospital or loses a family member or has just given birth to a child and there's a meal train set up to help them out, that's fellowship. That's sharing. That's giving. Fellowship takes place when you watch someone else's children so they can participate in a marriage Bible study. It's when you need someone to take you to go to the hospital or the doctor or to get a COVID shot. It's when you hand the keys and the title of your old car to a family that is struggling to make ends meet. At the heart of fellowship, friends, is a heart that is eagerly devoted to giving. Derek Thomas rightly says, what the first Christians shared together by faith in Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins, led them to share with each other their material possessions, something that would emerge again in Luke's portrait of the early church. The point is that they felt a sense of responsibility. Fellowship means that we are responsible to care for and to share what we have with the rest of the body. I love what Tertullian says. He was in Carthage in 200 AD. So this is not too far removed from Christ and then the early church. Here's what he says. Contributions are voluntary and proportionate to each one's income. 
They are used to support and bury poor people to supply the wants of boys and girls who are destitute of means and parents and of old people now confined to the house and such as has, have suffered shipwreck or any who are in the mines or banished to the islands or shut up in prison for their fidelity to God's church. I mean, this is in the early church and what we see here is this wonderful relationship that the body of Christ can have to one another, this sharing, this fellowship is being fleshed out. So it's no wonder that the Apostle Paul says to the Galatian church, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Devoted to fellowship. Third, devoted to the breaking of bread. Now, the meaning of the expression, the breaking of bread, has actually puzzled theologians through the years. And there are basically three views. Many see this as a description of the Lord's Supper alone. And over time, it did become an expression to describe the Lord's Supper. The question is whether or not that is the intent of what is being said here. Secondly, some see that it is both a community meal as well as the celebration of the Lord's Supper. In other words, both are going hand in hand, kind of like what we see in, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 11 where the Apostle Paul talks about having a meal which ends now with this love feast and the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Third one is, it simply is is talking about the church celebrating and enjoying meals together. Now, based on the context, I take the third view. Um, And here's why. Uh, These are general nature habits that are being talked about here. Um, And secondly, I mean, the general teaching of the apostles, the general fellowship that's being discussed, and now this general habit or discipline about the breaking of bread. The second thing is in verse 46, how this is tied together to what what is mentioned there, where the community is receiving their food with glad and generous hearts. Now, you could say, well, if it's talking about the Lord's table, we're receiving with glad and joyous hearts. But they're also receiving the food, enjoying the fellowship, enjoying the gathering of God's people around food. So I take this to to be describing the church's sharing meals together, that when the church gathered, either in the temple or in the homes, they sat down and enjoyed a meal together. And as often as they chose to do it, those meals would also include the celebration of the Lord's Supper. That's a wonderful thing, isn't it? I mean, sharing a meal with your church family is a wonderful thing. If you haven't done it, let me encourage you to do that. There's something about sitting around the table and sharing a meal and talking and interacting with one another. In fact, it is during those times of hospitality and and meals where conversations and relationships can go deeper simply because you're gathered together over a meal. I had a professor in college um, who, who said this, and he was trying to encourage us as pastors. He says, if you want your people to sit in your pew, then you must put your feet under their dining room table. Now, granted, he clearly had put his feet under a lot of dining room tables. I'm catching up with him. But his point was helpful. He saw the dynamic of a shared meal as a means by which you connect with people who are part of the body of Christ. 
So this is a reminder of the need for hospitality in the home, to use our homes and the sharing of meals with the gathering of believers, maybe even having some unbelievers around as an opportunity to experience joy and gladness with one another and to pursue deeper and more meaningful fellowship in the gospel. This is a reminder also of the body of Christ sharing meals in larger groups. And we've done that. We try and do that periodically after church for a picnic, during home group. And we've gone to home group at time. We don't always know what's going to happen. And all of a sudden we show up and there's this big spread and people are bringing all this stuff. And it's like we are enjoying the food and we're taking time to interact with the truth of God's word. And it's just a wonderful dynamic where food brings that together. So fellowship around food was important in the early church. And it should be important to us as well. So the question we have for us today is this. Are we devoted as individuals and as a church family to making this breaking of bread a priority? And by that, I don't just mean, well, let's just have food. The purpose of it was to have food, but to generate in that having food together deeper, more connected relationships around the gospel. And in light of the Lord of this connection and the corporate nature of the celebration of the Lord's Supper, ultimately we're going to do that today to realize that, that this is the ultimate gathering together where we break bread and we, we do it with joy and gladness. So, devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and now devoted to the prayers. Now, that might catch you a little bit off guard, that all of these have an article in front of them, right? The apostles' teachings, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, the prayers. Now, if you have grown up, raised in maybe, you might want to say, Baptist circles or more kind of broadly evangelical circles, you might actually struggle a little bit with this because what is being talked about here? We might find this a little bit awkward because we tend to think of that prayer written by someone else as not genuine enough or personal enough to, to use, as if, as if reading a written prayer by someone from years ago is something less spiritual than just the raw heart that's opening up to God. But friends, it would appear that the prayers are being talked about here are, are really, I would put them in three categories. Jewish prayers, prayers that have already been part of their Jewish tradition, even prayers based on passages of Scripture. Now just pause, and you've got you to think this through. I'll talk about it a little bit more in a moment, but Christianity is the outgrowth of Judaism, right? So let's just not, let's not kind of see it as a separate thing. Secondly, times for prayer. If you look at chapter 3, verse 1 of Acts, you'll notice that there was a time set aside, the ninth hour, for prayer. So there were certain times for prayer, as well as different kinds, different methodologies um, of prayer, kinds of prayer, different situations, different purposes, you know, like popcorn prayer. Has anyone ever done that before, a popcorn prayer? It's okay. You don't have to. You don't have to admit it if you've done it. That's okay. We won't be offended, right? Um, basically, it's just, it's just stand up and just give a one-sentence prayer. Um, Silent prayers, all-day prayers, week-long prayers where the church is you know, carving up time where we're going to be praying for something. Right? These are the kind of things, different kinds of prayers. But the point is that the early church's habit was to pray, and that is something that we have to be purposeful in. Our prayer drifts to the sidelines when it should be at the heart of our community life. And friends, I find myself repeatedly having to fight 
to get prayer into its rightful place. I don't know about you. It's just a challenge. Why? Well, there's always an action item I need to attend to. Right? There's always some kind of personal obligation that needs, needs accomplishing. There's, there's desires for comfort and relaxation that get in the way. And our Western uh, fast-paced, you-can-do-it culture tends to see prayer as the last resort rather than the essential foundation. Life and ministry are always, always pulling at us. Time is slipping away, and so it's easy to set prayer aside to neglect it as a necessary discipline and to measure our work by what we are doing physically or mentally rather than through the spiritual activity of prayer. Friends, did you know that every week on Sunday morning at 9.45 now, we have a group of people that are gathering to pray. They're praying for a number of things. They're praying for your needs. They're praying for God to work through my preaching. They're praying for your response to the word being preached. They're praying for the gospel to draw people to Christ. I mean, if you want to find a place to serve where you don't have to do any preparation, you can just show up and pray. It's a wonderful place. And I want to thank those people to do that. It's, it's a powerful and necessary ministry. Did you notice that even during the course of our Sunday morning gathering that we have no less than six prayers? A call to worship, usually one of our elders. An offering of thanksgiving after we've sung some songs, usually done by Peter Tamita. A pastoral prayer, again, by one of the elders or myself. A prayer for help and insight. That would be me typically as we're getting ready to jump into God's word. A prayer for the Spirit's work in application. It's usually what happens at the end of a sermon. And then a benediction. I mean, there's prayer all throughout what we're doing. And it strikes me that Luke, in his Gospels, wanted to emphasize something about the pattern of Christ. That before we actually went to go into some kind of area of ministry, we find him pausing for prayer. At the start of his ministry, we find that in Luke chapter 3. Before his healings, before he performed them in Luke chapter 5. Before the choosing of the 12, Luke chapter 6. Before the transfiguration in chapter 9. Before Jesus breathes his last breath on the cross in Luke 23. Again, Jesus is praying. So the pattern in the life of Jesus' ministry is that he would bathe in prayer the events that were yet to take place. It's a pattern for us to notice. And it's a pattern for us to emulate. And it would also appear that for Luke, prayer becomes the mark of a true disciple. It's really interesting. In Acts chapter 9 and verse 11, in the record of Saul's conversion and the first person that was now going to go talk with him, what we're told is that Saul, you'll find him, and Saul, this new convert, will be praying. (laughs) The one who was persecuted or persecuting is now praying. They're devoted to this. Now, friends, I get it. Prayer is always a topic that, when brought up, causes us great discomfort. For we all know that we're guilty of falling short. And yet, this is a foundational and essential priority for the church. It is to be the mark of every believer. So, devoted to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, the prayers. Secondly, having looked now 
at the discipline of devotion, what we're going to read next flows out of these priorities being present in the church. So there's a logical flow from, from, from verse 42 to verses 43 through 47. What we're going to see here now are, are these effects of what it produces in one, I want to say, the, the, the impact of, of the church making these priorities. And when the church embeds these disciplines and habits into their DNA, it will affect their relationship with one another and it will affect their relationship with those outside the church. So now in verses 43 through 47a, Peter highlights five effects of disciplined devotion, five ways that having these habits will impact the church. We've touched a little bit on some of these, but let's take them one at a time here. And I would say briefly, okay? First of all, verse 43, and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. I'm calling this evangelistic awe. As the apostles continued to be the vehicles through which the Holy Spirit worked, likely in similar ways, to what took place at Pentecost and in the performing of miracles, a sense of awe was present among all those who observed or experienced them. A sense of holy terror, that's what the idea is here. A divine presence, an attitude of reverence. Now, some of the miracles described in the succeeding chapters are the healing of the lame beggar, the healing of the sick and possessed, the healing of the bedridden and paralyzed man, the raising of Dorcas from the dead. And so we need to remember, however, that these signs and wonders were designed to attract attention as well as to point to spiritual truth. And we're going to see that specifically next week. But they're not the end in of themselves. See, church was not supposed to be a show. Church was supposed to be a meal. And the signs and wonders were the means by which people People's attention were captivated so that they could hear the truth of the gospel. And often what you're going to find, we'll talk about this more next week, is that that these signs and wonders were the, I want to say, the illustration to be used to explain Christ. So these were not the end in of themselves, and that's really important for us to understand. As As the church is faithful to be filled with the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, and to produce the fruit of the Spirit, it will see God move in mighty ways. What kind of mighty ways? Well, look up at the screen. Answering prayers, providing for needs, opening doors, giving great comfort, finding a healthy perspective, living with confidence, especially in a context of uncertainty. And friends, just understand, there's there's an evangelistic awe And we're going through right now a season where the whole world is in panic because of this COVID-19 issue. And we as the church then have the opportunity to come at this with whatever decision we're going to make. And I'll explain that in just a minute. But to come at it not with fear, but by exercising faith in God. Now, I want to make sure we understand this. We who know Christ can be examples of wisdom, thoughtfulness, confidence, because we know that we are in God's hands. If you're a child of God, do you know that? Do you know that you are completely, totally in the care of your heavenly Father? I hope you do, because it's screaming from Scripture. 
And with that reality, whether our faith over fear drives us to choose the vaccine or whether our faith over fear drives us to not get the vaccine, because both answers can come as a result of faith and both answers can come as a result of fear. The point here is this, that as a church, we don't function out of fear. We function by saying, Lord, you're in control. You're sovereign based on your truth and biblical wisdom. I really believe this is the direction I need to go. I'm not doing it out of fear. I'm doing it out of faith. Either take the vaccine, don't take the vaccine. Both can be issues of faith. When the answer is born out of fear, we're in dangerous territory. And so the world can see that. If we are functioning out of fear, guess what the world sees? Oh, these people are supposed to be Christians. They're supposed to be settled in their confidence that God is in control. Look at them now. See, this is evangelistic. What God does in our lives is evangelistic. Secondly, evangelistic awe. Secondly, unity. And all who believe were together and had all things in common. Ooh, man, our political world loves this verse. This is not a picture of communism. This is not a picture of socialism. This is a picture of the church. I want you to notice in here that no one is being coerced to give up all their money and possessions when they come to faith in Christ. It all belongs to God, yes, but that doesn't mean you give it all to the church. So to, to, to force in the, the square peg of some political movement into this round hole of gospel living is to, is to undermine Scripture. The next few chapters will give us clear indication of this. These early Christians owned property and possessions, but as a need became known, they voluntarily contributed to help their brother or sister who was in distress. So in today's context, this is what it looks like. Leaning on the expertise of another who is part of the church to help you with a problem that you're facing or a project that you're embarking on. But we're united together. I know some people who have different gifts and skills and abilities, and I'm not necessarily asking them to do that, but I might lean on their expertise to say, hey, what's a good product, or what's the way I should do this? Borrowing a tool for a project or for a special family gathering in your home. Again, we're together. We're having all things in common. Providing a meal when there's a need. Helping someone with a medical bill or keeping their mortgage going. There's there's this togetherness. There's this all things in common. Now, we understand that we can turn this around and people can take advantage of what appears to be an entryway to get stuff for themselves. So it doesn't mean that you have the right to take and use something that belongs to another because, hey, we're all God's happy family and we really shouldn't have our own possessions. So so that possession is mine and I'm going to take it from you. You shouldn't have a problem with it. No, 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 no. That's not what's going on here. It does mean being willing to have your resources, your home, your vehicles, and your tools, and your time, and even your money to be used to help your brother or sister who is in need. So is it any surprise that as we open up God's word, that one of the things that we find mentioned over and over again is the description of the church as being one another, right? 
greeting one another, be at peace with one another, forgiving one another, loving one another, serving one another, being devoted to one another, comforting one another, encouraging one another, building up one another, being hospitable to one another, praying for one another. This is unity. This is the togetherness. This is having things in common. This is unique to the church. This is not a political movement. This is the outgrowth of saying the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer is actively at work in the context of our church. Third here, third effect, compassion. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So this compassion naturally flows out of the sense of unity. And as they gathered together in the temple and in each other's homes, the needs of the body became evident. And there is a responsibility to those needs out of the abundance of their possessions. So the idea here is that as we are saying we are together and as we are having, as we're hearing a need, because we're sharing a meal together and we're actually spending time together, we hear about the need. There's a, there's a compassion now that comes up because we hear there's a need. But hear this, in order to be compassionate, one must know the need. You can't just, you know, walk in and be quiet and never say anything and no one knows the need and then complain because they didn't ask. Look, I understand people, you know, that, that might happen, people may not ask, but don't blame people for not knowing what your need is unless you are putting yourself in the context where you're spending time and you're sharing what your needs are. So we're talking here again about meal trains and helping people move and getting someone to the hospital for a medical checkup or watching children in an emergency situation or weeping with those who are overwhelmed and confused and distraught or grieving, listening as someone unburdens their heart struggles, encouraging and walking with those who feel like a bruised reed or a smoldering wick, or guiding and strengthening those who have fallen flat on their face in sin. This is compassion. Now, this is also work. And then after compassion, we have worship. Look at verse 46. And day by day, attending, to the, temp- attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. So they gathered day by day in the temple, they gathered in their homes, and we might be asking ourselves, since they're now Christians, why are they still worshiping in the temple? Why not just worship at home? I mean, they're Christians now, they're not, they're not following Judaism, and please hold on here. I realize that during the time of Christ and up to that time, the Judaism that was practiced was a far distortion from what God intended when he revealed himself in the Old Testament. What was going on in the temple was not a reflection of what God desired to actually be going on. And these people recognized that that what was going on was ritualism and legalism. And as we read last week, Peter describes them as a corrupt generation. But these Jews who had now rightly seen that Jesus is the Christ that the scriptures uh, were talking about, they go to the right place to worship. In other words, they rightly see that their worship of Christ is the natural outgrowth of what the scriptures called for. True Judaism has as its goal 
the Messiah. And so they're simply functioning within the paradigm that was already in place. Now, God is going to continue to unpack that as the apostles teach and preach. In the temple, they would have listened to one another, um, or should listen to one of the apostles preach and teach about Christ. They would have prayed together. They would have shared a meal. And out of the gladness of, of their generous hearts, they would have praised God, likely in the form of song. And the same activity, I'm sure, based on what we're reading here, was taking place in the homes. So this kind of worship comes because of teaching and fellowship, breaking of bread, and of prayer. Now remember, the word worship comes from the Anglo-Saxon word, worthskype, which later became uh, helpful for us, worthship, which basically says that the reason we bow down before God is because he is worthy he is worth e of our worship. He's worth our praise. They truly love the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they wanted to come and they wanted to worship him. So evangelistic awe, unity, compassion, worship. The last one, again, looks out a little bit, and it's community respect. Look at the last part of verse well, actually, the first part there of verse 47, and having favor with all the people. You might say, isn't this talking about the body? It seems that even the, that first effect and this last effect really are talking about the relationship with those outside the church. The point here is that this new community, because they are devoted to these foundational principles, began to, to live out their lives according to this new set of, of, of principles. They truly loved the Lord Jesus Christ. They, they loved one another. They truly wanted to meet each other's needs. And the world in which they lived was observing it. And the world around them looked on them with favor. This is not to say that there would not be opposition, as we will continue to read in Acts. They're going to find there is opposition to the preaching of the gospel. But friends, if the world opposes us for our faith, so be it. But if the world opposes us for our true hypocrisy and sinful behavior, then we should be the first ones to acknowledge our sin, to seek forgiveness and restoration, and be the example of what true forgiveness looks like. There's no one perfect sitting in this room. You and I will interact with those who are not believers, and we will sin against them in some way, shape, or form. But are we quick to jump and to say, ah, oh, I shouldn't have said that. My, my tone was too harsh. Are we, are we humble enough to realize that we have a responsibility to do that to them, not just to the body of Christ, but to them? And probably quicker to them. Why? Because you might not see them again, because you're not interacting with them. Now, unfortunately, in today's context, we have a society that's quickly looking to determine what is sinful and what is not. They have determined the criteria for sin, cultural sin. You know these things. It's sinful to say anything about modesty and sexual purity in this culture. Sinful. Shut down. Stop it. Cut it out. You're a hater, right? It is sinful to say anything about the humanity or the personhood of the unborn. How could you even say that and think that? Don't you? You don't care about people. You don't care about women. 
It is sinful to oppose the ideology and the winds of contemporary culture. Boy, if you stand against the popular cultural ideology, man, you are shut down. See, they, they have their gospel. <laughs> they have their law. But I'm just saying, those are opposed. And yet God has called us to live in the context of this. And we are not to respond in kind. We're, respond, we're to respond out of the outflow of being devoted to the apostles' teaching, being devoted to fellowship, being devoted to the breaking of bread, being devoted to prayer. And putting all this together, friends, we come to this last part of verse 47. I'm calling this the fruit of devotion. This newly formed community of believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer, and the fruit of their faithfulness is that day by day, more and more people were receiving the word and being saved. Boy, this is good news. But notice that Luke makes sure that we see that although people were faithful, it was, in fact, the Lord who added to their number. It says, and the Lord added to their number day by day. What we now have to realize is that we are the vehicles God chooses to use to accomplish his purposes. We are the means. We are not the cause. We are the tools in God's toolbox, so to speak, that he is now breathing his gospel through. And he delights to accomplish his sovereign purposes through his faithful children. The Apostle Paul, I think, sums it up well. We know this. So neither he who plants or he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. And yet, we are called to be faithful. We are called to these things. We are called to, to have these as part of our uh, habits and of devotion. But our habits of devotion don't guarantee results. We are to pursue them. We are to be faithful in them. But we need to remember, always, always remember, it wasn't me. It was God. I mean, if today, as a result of my preaching this morning, we have three people that get saved. I don't say, oh man, I got three people saved this morning. Oh, no, 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 no. All I did was what God called me to do, to be faithful. He is the one who gets the glory for any conversion, for any move of the Holy Spirit. My job is simply to be faithful as God's mouthpiece for his gospel. So, we need to be reminded to be faithful. And when it comes to getting credit for the fruit, we need to get out of the way and point to Christ. So those who are being saved, notice that statement there, although our conversion is a moment in time, there is also a sense in which there's a journey. We have been saved, we know that, but you can look back at your life before Christ, probably if you were saved at an you know, older age, maybe if you were five or six when you, know, you came to know the Lord, but you don't see too much behind that. But with me, there was certainly a journey. And I remember being in places and, and thinking certain things along the way that God was slowly just kind of pulling me to himself, right? You guys been there? Know what I'm talking about? There's a journey, and we need to recognize that journey, but, but, but ultimately that journey is fulfilled in a moment in time where conversion takes place. And just think about this. Just think about Pentecost. Just think about the day. Just think about 3,000 
devoted or devout Jews, some of them from Jerusalem, but many of them having come to Jerusalem from all around the Mediterranean, getting up maybe, maybe a few weeks before that, having interaction with family to say, I'm going to Jerusalem and I want to celebrate the Pentecost there and making new arrangements and getting on a boat and finally getting to, to, to Jaffa and getting off the boat there and coming down to Jerusalem. And finally, just standing in Jerusalem and, and being here in this holy city and wanting to celebrate this wonderful festival. And the whole time, what they think is their desire to go is God actually reeling them in. And while they're in Jerusalem, they hear this sound, like a mighty rushing wind. And boy, a whole bunch of them go to look and find out what it is, and they find a home where people are speaking, and they're speaking in different known tongues because they are hearing their own, their own language proclaiming the mighty works of God. What is going on here? God is reeling them in. He's pulling them in. They are being saved. They're in this process. And just remember, friends, there are probably some people sitting in here right now that are in the process that have not yet come to the point where they bowed the knee and said in their heart, Jesus, you are Lord and Savior. I humble myself before you forgive me of my sin. So friends, all of us who have received the word, who have been converted through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, we were on a journey to Christ before our conversion took place. But we now see him as the Messiah. But this all flows out of the faithfulness of a church that is devoted to these four ingredients. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. And I just want to bring things to a close with just a real short concluding thought. It's interesting that the Spirit-filled church, united by Christ and his gospel, that is eager to know, apply, and proclaim the word of God and the gospel of, of Jesus Christ for the glory of God, is described in the scriptures using a number of different metaphors. And I just want to highlight four of those metaphors and just hone in on one, just real briefly here. We're described as a building where... The apostles are the foundation, and Christ is the cornerstone. We're described as a body where Jesus is the head, and we are the eyes and the ears and the hands. And see, in both these illustrations, you see the the diversity, but you see the unity, but you also see the authority. We are a flock where Jesus is the shepherd, and we are the ignorant and stubborn sheep. And we are a household or a family where God is our father and we are his children. I just want to focus in on that last one. We are the family of God. And family is always priority. Family isn't perfect by any means. Brothers and sisters don't always see eye to eye. But when our father speaks, we are to listen and we are to obey. We celebrate good times together. We share sorrows together. We work hard together. We rest together. We grow together. 
And together we take time out to remind ourselves of what Christ has done for us on the cross. It's good to celebrate the church. And it's good for us to ask the question, how do we measure up to this ideal? And maybe we are like that family gathered at J.C. Penney's studio for that family portrait. And as a little snap, and it looks so good, we still have the right home. And there's still life to live. And it's messy, and it's difficult. And that's the reality, friends. But we want to pursue being what God has called us to be. And we celebrate that pursuit. We celebrate the church, even with all of its niggly struggles. Because this is what God has established. Because of his gospel. Now, this morning I want my final prayer to walk us into the Lord's Supper. And I just want to say before I pray that if you're visiting with us this morning and you have a certain affirmation that you are a child of God, you've embraced Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you call him, you call him your Christ and your Lord because of what he's done on the cross. You are welcome to come join us. Instructions come out of the pew this way. Stay in two lines. Go back around the pew and that way, whichever side you're from, okay? And we'll take the elements together. But again, I'm going to do something here as we pray. I'm going to ask you to stand. Um, and, you know, we don't typically do this, but I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to read a prayer. And I want to do that because some of you may, may have not been in a church where that is ever done. And yet, I think sometimes it's good because the writers of these prayers can actually say some things and articulate some things that we need to hear and we would want to affirm. And this comes from a little book of prayers called The Valley of Vision. And it's called the Lord's Supper. So I would encourage you to bow your heads and pray along with me this prayer. God of all good, I bless thee for the means of grace. Teach me to see in them thy loving purposes and the joy and the strength of my soul. Thou hast prepared for me a feast, and though I am unworthy to sit down as a guest, I wholly rest on the merits of Jesus and hide myself beneath his righteousness. When I hear his tender invitation and see his wondrous grace, I cannot hesitate but must come to thee in love. By thy spirit, enliven my faith, rightly to discern and spiritually to apprehend the Savior. While I gaze upon the the emblems of my Savior's death, may I ponder why he died and hear him say, I gave my life to purchase yours, presented an offering to expiate your sin, shed my blood to blot out your guilt, opened my side to make you clean, endured your curses to set you free, bore your condemnation to satisfy divine justice. Oh, may I rightly grasp the breadth and length of this design. Draw near, obey, extend the hand, take the bread, receive the cup, eat and drink, 
testify before all men that I do for myself gladly in faith, reverence, and love, receive my Lord to be my life, strength, nourishment, joy, delight. In the supper, I remember his eternal love, boundless grace, infinite compassion, agony, cross, redemption, and receive assurance of pardon, adoption, life, glory. As the outward elements nourish my body, so may the indwelling spirit invigorate my soul until that day when I hunger and thirst no more and sit with Jesus at his heavenly feast. Lord, we pray this in preparation now in your wonderful, precious, and glorious name. Amen. Amen.